If you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles and open them up to the book of Matthew. Uh, The book of Matthew and chapter 20. Uh, Matthew chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please feel free to use one of those provided for you uh, in the seats in front of you. And if you choose to use one of those, you'll find our passage this morning on page 825. Uh, Back in 1996, which is now over two decades ago, which is unbelievable, uh, a movie came out that was directed by Ron Howard, famous, of course, as Opie from The Andy Griffith Show and his role on the show Happy Days, and now a movie director, directed Apollo 13 and films like that. But this movie was called Ransom. It starred Mel Gibson. Uh, He was a wealthy corporate father whose son gets kidnapped and held for ransom. Uh, The kidnapper, played by Gary Sinise, demands $2 million or the boy dies. Uh, I don't actually know how the, the story unfolds, but the movie made millions at the box office. And it's just one example of the thousands of books and movies in which the idea of ransom is central to the plot. As Christians, we believe that history, the true story of this world, has the theme of ransom at the very center of its plot. God is the author of history, and He has chosen to make this story that He is writing, that He is bringing about, He has chosen to make history a ransom story. But in this story, it isn't just one person who is in danger. It's all people. And we are not threatened by a bad guy. We're threatened by a good guy. Namely, God himself. Because we are the bad guys. All people are justly threatened with death. Because they are sinners against a good and holy God. And the danger that we are in is far worse than just physical death. It is the danger of eternal torment, both of our body and our soul. Human beings are in danger of the wrath of God poured out upon us in hell. And so what is the price that must be paid to ransom us, to satisfy the justice of God, to set us free from this terrible fate? It's way more than $2 million. That much money doesn't even come close. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So look with me, verses 17 through 28, Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28, and we're going to see this idea of ransom. This is the very word of God. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged 
and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Well, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Now, this exchange is fairly simple to understand. Uh, James and John were not just disciples of Jesus. James and John were cousins of Jesus. It was their mother, Salome, that comes to ask this question, and their mother is Jesus' aunt, aunt, depending on how you say it. James and John had visions of grandeur in their heads, And they wanted to be sure that when Jesus came into his kingdom, they would be sitting in the places of honor and authority. So they send their mother to ask this question, though other accounts make clear it is actually James and John who are asking the question. They're using their mother. Uh, They think that by sending Jesus' aunt to ask the question, maybe he's more likely to give a positive answer. And yet notice that when Jesus answers the question, he answers the two men, not her. The central message of this passage is also quite clear. True greatness is not found in exalting yourself, but in humbling yourself, in sacrifice and in service. You and I were not created to be gods. You and I were created to be servants. We are not to find our joy in being served. We are to find our highest honor and our highest joy in serving God by serving others. And so there's a warning for us in these verses. On this occasion, James and John were seeking to use Jesus for their own self-promotion and their own self-glorification. They wanted to ride Jesus' coattails to power and status. They were following Jesus, but they were also concerned for their own name, concerned for their own reputation, concerned for their own glory. And I simply ask us, friends, do we not see our own hearts here? How often have we come to Christ to ask Him for things that were selfishly motivated? 
That when I'm thinking and feeling as I ought, I pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. But too often my prayers sound very different than that. I come to Jesus with requests that are not motivated by my love for him, but by my love for me. In our studies of various books of the Bible, there have been certain discoveries along the way that have particularly stuck with me. Uh, One of those goes all the way back to our time at the very beginning of the book of Romans. I was struck that among all the phrases that Paul could have chosen to describe himself, the one he mentions first is that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. And when we started the book of James the other night at Care Group, We saw that James was the half-brother of Jesus. But when he writes his letter, that's not the title he uses. Nor does he begin by calling himself an apostle. He begins by calling himself a servant of Christ Jesus. It's the same with with Peter. 2 Peter 1.1, Peter says, I am a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Servant is the word he uses first. In Revelation 1.1, John refers to himself as God's servant. These same men, who here were called up in self-promotion and self-glorying, become changed by the Spirit of God. So that when we read them in their maturity, in their letters inspired by the Holy Spirit, here is the title they glory in. Servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This this was their boast. I get to be a servant of the greatest king, the most wonderful king of all, the king of kings. I get to serve in his house, in his palace, his kingdom. So I've asked you this question before in different ways. If you were to write an essay entitled, Who Am I? What would you say first about yourself? And would it be the tendency of your heart to say, first, this is my identity. Our culture is so caught up in identity right now. Who am I? What gender am I? What sexuality am I? Where do I fit on a spectrum? But as Christians, this is to be our identity. We are blood-bought servants of Jesus Christ. In our passage, Jesus is teaching James, John, and the other disciples that this is who he is. He is a servant. The greatness of Jesus Christ is found in his servitude, his servanthood. And if we are to be like him, if we are to share in the joy of Jesus, we must follow him in being a servant. And so I think of Isaiah 26, verse 8. Your name and your renown is the desire of our souls. Is that what's happening in your heart this morning? Can you say that? Your name, God, your renown is the desire of my soul. Are you so amazed at God's love for you? So captured by His grace, so awestruck by His wonders that your highest Your chief desire, informing every other desire within you, is that His name and His renown would be known in this world. Or could it be that far too often, if we're honest, 
The cry of our soul is my fame, my comfort, my success, my ease is the desire of my soul. Mount Hermon, we cannot be too hard on James and John. We can't read this passage and talk about how messed up they were to go get their mother to ask Jesus this question because the fact is the same self-promoting, self-glorifying hearts that we see in them are still in us as well. But if we could see things rightly, if we could see straight, we would realize we were not created to live for ourselves That our greatest happiness will come when we conform to God's purpose for us. And his purpose for us is not that we be worshipped, but that we find joy in worshipping. We were made to be worshippers. We are malfunctioning when we are trying to obtain glory for ourselves. We are functioning rightly when our lives are devoted to him who is worthy of all worship and all glory. This is the way of true and eternal joy. And so one response to this passage is for us to pray. We need to pull the rope of the bell of heaven and pull it strongly over and over, not stopping until God gives us what we ask. And what do we ask? That God would cleanse us from our pride. That God would save us from our self-absorption. Oh, how happy we would be if our hearts were full of Him and not us. We could learn a lot from the missionary David Brainerd here. Uh, His diary published after his death was stock full of these intense personal prayers to God. Let me forget the world and be swallowed up in the desire to glorify God. Here I am, send me. Send me to the ends of the earth. Send me to the rough, the savage lost of the wilderness. Send me from all that is called comfort on earth. Send me even to death itself, if it be but in your service and to promote your kingdom. Lord, let me make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. Oh, that I might live nearer to God this year than I did the last May I for the future be enabled to more sensibly make the glory of God my all. May I live to God in every capacity of my life. We get it backwards. Our culture thrives on self-preservation and selfish living. We do all that we can to live a little bit longer, a little more comfortably with a few more toys. But the Bible says that we are at our best and our happiest when we are laying down our lives for others. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So I wonder, as you think about even this past week, what have you done for God that required sacrifice? In this past week, what have you done in love for God that cost you? Is your life characterized by a kind of daily worship that is seen by serving those created in God's image? Remember the end of Matthew 25, where Jesus says, As you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. 
we show love to Jesus by serving him, by serving the needs of people around us, especially the people of God around us. What I would like to do now is focus on one particular aspect of this passage. I want us to think about why Jesus responded to James and John's question the way he did. Uh, How did he respond? He responded by saying, you do not know what you are asking. You want my glory? You don't know what you're asking. He said, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? What's he talking about there? What is this cup? Let me show you two truths about Christ's cup that I hope will make this clear for you. The first is this, Christ's cup was the suffering that God had allotted for him to endure. The cup of Christ was the suffering that God had allotted for him to endure. And so later in Matthew 26, we find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And already he's beginning to feel the weight of the guilt of sinners upon his shoulders The cross and all of the suffering that will go with it is is right in front of him. And Jesus prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup that Christ was to drink was the suffering of God's righteous wrath poured out upon sin. Isaiah 51, verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. The cup of Christ was the cup that he drank in the place of sinners. It was the cup of the wrath of God. Remember when Judas came with the soldiers, he betrayed Jesus with a kiss, and then Peter took out his sword, and Peter was ready to fight. And what did Jesus say? John 18, 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jerry Bridges says, what was in the cup? It was the wrath of God. It was the cup of wrath that we should have drunk. Jesus as our representative drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. He drained it to the dregs. He tasted the last drop. And he did it for us. As our substitute. From Gethsemane to Golgotha. Christ drank the cup of the wrath of God for our sin. And then the second truth about Christ's cup is this. By drinking this cup, Christ accomplished our ransom. Jesus not only bore God's wrath for the sins of his people, but he bore that wrath fully and completely. He bore it away. The sins of his people were once and for all completely paid for. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In verse 28, Jesus tells us he came to give his life as a ransom. And so here is the center of human history. Here is the heart of the gospel. 
Think with me for a moment about this ransom. First, who was the ransom paid to? Because there have been some throughout the pages of church history who thought that the ransom for sinners was paid to Satan. They say that Satan held us in his grips. And Satan would only release us from his grasp through the payment to Satan of Jesus' life. They say at the cross, Jesus gave his life as a payment to Satan so that we could be freed from the devil's kingdom and brought into Christ's kingdom. Mount Hermon, that teaching is very, very wrong. And when your children read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe... And I love C.S. Lewis, and I love that book, but you have to be clear with them about this because it's a little flimsy here. Because it sure seems like Aslan gives his life as a payment to the white witch to set Edmund free. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go read the book. Jesus did not give his life as a payment to Satan so that we would be free from Satan. That gives Satan way too much credit. As terrible as the devil is, it is not he that poses sinners the greatest danger. It is not Satan that holds the fate of sinners in his hands. Satan accuses us. Satan wants our destruction. But whether or not we are destroyed is not ultimately up to him. It's up to God. Satan does not determine our fate. God does. He is the judge. And our debt is to God. Our criminal acts are against God. It is God's wrath that imperils sinners. It is God's wrath that hangs above sinners like a spear ready to drop with deadly force at any moment. And this isn't Justin, this is Jesus teaching. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. When Jesus died as a sacrifice, who was he sacrificing himself to? Who was he paying this price to? Ephesians 5 verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Hebrews 9 14, Christ offered himself without blemish to God. The ransom was paid to God. Okay, next question. What was the ransom price? Answer, it was the life of Christ. Verse 28, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so you might have heard someone say something like, one drop of Christ's blood is so precious that all it would take is one drop to ransom the world. And that sounds nice, but it isn't true. If one drop of blood had been all that it could have taken, Jesus could have pricked his finger and we could have been redeemed. But no, in the Old Testament, 
The blood of the sacrificial lamb had to flow so that it was clear that the life of the lamb had been taken. The cost of the sacrifice was the life of the lamb in the place of another's life. Christ was the sacrificial lamb who gave his life for us so that we might have life and not eternal death. The wages of sin are death. And Christ took death for us. When he was forsaken by his father on the cross, he experienced death in its truest form. He experienced the condemnation of God against sin. His life was snuffed out. Which is why what happened three days later is so amazing. The life that was given in sacrifice and death was resurrected and exalted above all. So who was the ransom paid to? God. What was the cost of the ransom? The very life of the Son of God. Question three. Who was ransomed? Who was ransomed? Who did Christ pay this price for? And first, there is a very true sense in which Christ paid this ransom for all people. Because 1 Timothy 2 verse 6 says, He gave Himself a ransom for all. And this means that the salvation purchased by Christ's death is available to all who will receive it. There is no one on planet earth who should fear that if they come to Christ in faith, the cross will not be sufficient for them. Christ's death on the cross has opened the door to heaven wide open to any, to everyone who will come in faith. In our verse, however, verse 28, we're told that Christ's death paid the ransom for many. For you see, those who never come to faith in Jesus are still in their sins. And those who never come to faith in Jesus will remain under the wrath of God. Those who never repent but live their lives in wicked unbelief will find that the cross does them no good on the last day. The price Jesus paid was for his people, his bride, those given to him before the foundation of the world. And ultimately we are told that these people will be found in every tongue, tribe, and nation. You know what I hope by heart. Revelation 5, 9, they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So in every people group of the world, there are some who Christ paid the price for in such a way that they truly will believe on Christ and their sins will be forgiven and they are part of the church of God. And I guess my question for you is this. Are you one of the ransomed? Are you one of the many in verse 28? Are you one of those whose sins have been forgiven, whose punishment has been taken, whose price has been paid? And here's how you can know. Have you turned from your sins to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? For all who follow Jesus in faith can be sure that they are among the ransomed. Now in light of all this, what in the world 
does Jesus mean when he then tells James and John in verse 23 that they will drink his cup? Do you see that? Verse 23, Jesus has just asked them if they are able to drink the cup he is to drink. They, not realizing what this cup entailed, says yes. And Jesus responds by saying, you will indeed drink this cup. What do we do with that? Because obviously James and John cannot suffer the way Jesus suffered on the cross. The suffering of Jesus was utterly unique. He experienced the fullness of God's wrath for the many, many, many sins of many, many, many people. So what is Jesus teaching when he says that his followers will also drink of his cup? Two answers. First, our cup is a cup of suffering. All Christians who follow Jesus will experience suffering. Uh, Matthew 10, beginning in verse 16, Jesus told his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, they will deliver you over to courts. They will flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Later he says, brother will deliver brother over to death, the father, his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The one who endures to the end will be saved. James and John both would experience great suffering later in their life because of Christ. James would be killed with the sword by Herod because of his testimony. John would be tortured. I remember the, if the accounts are true, they're not biblical, they're historical, so we're not 100% sure, but we're told that the Apostle John was thrown into a, a cauldron of boiling oil before he was in exile to the Isle of Patmos. Friends, God has a portion of suffering allotted for each one of us. Suffering has its place in our lives and in our stories And God does good and gracious work through suffering. Just as God's plan for His beloved Son included great suffering, God's plan for His children includes all various kinds of suffering. We trust Him with the types and the degrees of our suffering, but we should not be surprised when it comes our way. And we should reject immediately any kind of prosperity gospel teaching that suggests that suffering is abnormal for Christians. And then second, and this is a crucial distinction, our cup is not a cup of wrath, but a cup of salvation. Yes, we are drinking of Christ's cup. But because of his death on the cross, the cup is transformed. It is a different kind of cup. It is not a cup of wrath. It is a cup of salvation. So that even in your suffering, God is doing you good. Psalm 116.13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. The cup of wrath has been completely emptied by Christ. Praise God. There is no wrath left for Christians. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. So our suffering is not, your suffering is not an expression of God's wrath against you. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I know it may be hard to see, but your suffering is grace. And your suffering is God doing you good. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As the hymn says, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Looking back, we often see that it was in those moments of great distress in our lives that we became most humble, that we learned to trust God more, that we found Him to be more precious, that our intimacy with Him was strengthened. And so let me close with this point. If we have the kind of faith that makes us willing to join Christ in suffering, we will also join Him in glory. Paul says in 2 Timothy, this saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Dear friends, Christ says to us, follow me. He said, follow me, and he went to a cross. So we're following Jesus to a cross. Are you willing to suffer and sacrifice for the name of Jesus? But know this. If you're willing to follow him in humbling yourself and serving others, self-denial, self-sacrifice, you will follow him right on through the cross into glory, into exaltation, into resurrection. There is no crown without a cross, but by the grace of God, there is a crown. It is by God's mercy that we are able to humble ourselves and serve others. And so when we get to heaven, God will crown his own mercy in us. The Christian message actually is a health and wealth gospel. (laughs) The Christian message does say one day you will have a perfect body and you will have great riches. You will have pure joy and pure peace and there will be no more sickness and no more sorrow and no more pain and no more death. But it's a message of health and wealth not for this life. This is the cross-bearing life. This is the life that's but a vapor. And the sufferings of this life will not compare with the glory to be revealed on the last day. So many people believe in cheap grace that requires no self-denial, no killing of pride, no killing of selfishness, no sacrifice. That's cheap grace. Matthew Henry says, we know not what we ask when we ask for the glory of wearing the crown And then not ask for the grace to bear the cross that leads to it. And so friends, let us trust in Jesus. Let us be confident in our salvation in Him. And then in the joy of His serving sacrificial love for us, let us follow Him in laying down our lives for others. Let God's renown be our desire, Jesus' example, our pattern for living, and the callings of God, our main opportunities to act. May we always be willing to humble ourselves to serve those whom God has placed around us and brought across our path. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.